All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, joining me now is Lee McIntyre. He's the author of The Scientific Attitude. The subtitle of the book is Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. Indeed, uh, that sounds like something we should do. Lee, welcome to the program, brother. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, no problem. So, Lee, uh, tell us the difference between science and pseudoscience. So, uh, the main difference between science and pseudoscience, I think, is the attitude that people take uh, toward evidence. Um, in science, uh, what I call the scientific attitude is that scientists care about evidence and they're willing to let evidence change their mind uh, and form new beliefs. In pseudoscience, it's always seemed to me that people uh, have, they know what they want to believe first. They have some sort of an ideology that they're starting with. And then they're, they cherry pick evidence that supports them. And then they won't even consider or they reject evidence that doesn't. So it's kind of like they want the trappings of science, but they're not willing to do the hard work to really test their theory. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I thought when you said scientific attitude, you were going to talk about swagger. Uh, but it. There's <laughs> <laughs> a bit of that. Yeah. Well, you know, and in some sense, though, it's the anti swagger because scientists yeah. are never really sure. They're like, well, let's test it, see what happens. <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> I feel like that's the motto of scientists. What do I know? Let's test it. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, you had to write this book, which means we're in troubling times. Because, yeah, yeah, normally science is great. What's, I mean, who would argue against facts and reason and logic? And the, unfortunately, the answer is plenty of people these days. So, who are those folks and what are you trying to battle out there? So, it used to be that science denial was a sort of a, a fringe thing, you know, the folks who thought that we didn't land on the moon uh, and such, the, you know, hardcore conspiracy theories. And the interesting thing is that science denial really got cooking in the 1950s when the tobacco companies started to manufacture doubt about mm. whether or not cigarette smoking caused lung cancer. And I think, and you can read about that in Naomi Oreska's uh, terrific book, Emergence of Doubt. The interesting thing there is once people learn that you can manufacture doubt, that you can create disinformation and you know, make people confused about factual questions, then they rode that. I mean, they rode that forward into climate change, into denial about evolution, vaccines. And so a lot of the people that we're talking about are just regular everyday people who are monumentally confused about whether science has reached consensus about climate change or whether they should vaccinate their kids. And unfortunately, the voices of disinformation out there, maybe people who have something to gain by it, but not in every case, are really loud. And so I think a lot of people are really confused about who to believe. We're, we all have cognitive bias wired into our heads. And so uh, some of it's not just fringe anymore. You, you're seeing an awful lot of people be tempted by science denial now who never would have been in the past. They, they don't trust science anymore. So, Lee, uh, wow, you, you hit on a number of really important things there. Um, and, and this is why I often come back to the media as part of the uh, folks who are the culprits here, because this is an organized campaign by corporations. Um, so it wasn't the case of tobacco, and that's a fact, and now everybody acknowledges it because we're pretty much past that. Uh, but we're in the middle of one right now uh, on climate change. Yeah. And, and the oil companies, we know, we just saw the reports leaked documents from the 1970s where they knew, not the 1990s, not the 80s, not the 2000s, we're talking about the 1970s, they knew climate change was real. 
and and they actively have been covering it up since then and and when the media says well he said she said we're going to call it 50-50 well that equates lies and truth and and That's that right. gives lies a giant advantage doesn't it yeah absolutely i mean the the really shocking thing is not only did the uh, uh, oil companies know about it since the 1970s but if you look back at some of the leaked documents at the same time that their public relations people were making the claim that you know climate change wasn't real their scientists were making plans for what they were going to do to explore in the polar ice cap uh, once it had melted so i mean just the most cynical thing that that you can imagine um and it's uh, you know that's a that's a that's an awful thing to to think that that sort of uh, thing happens but it but it does so it, unfortunately now the right wing has done this on a mass scale, so they're doing it, and you probably are are not aware of this because this is the world we live in. Uh, so this isn't about science versus not science. This is about facts versus non-facts. So what they do is they try to smear every progressive in the country, leading progressives in the country, mm-hmm. and make up things about them. Uh, and the purpose is not to convince everyone that they are right because they're making it up. The purpose is for people to throw their hands up and go, "I can't tell, I can't tell." Yeah. Uh, the alt-right brags about how sometimes they label people uh, pedophiles, even though they know they're not, just yeah. so that people have doubt about them. This idea of manufacturing doubt is now pervasive. So, <laughs> Lee, I don't know that you have the solutions to this, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. How, <laughs> in, the, how in the world do we reel it back in? Well, you know, the, the problem is, People do resort to terrible tactics sometimes to discredit the other side because, as you said, they're creating doubt where it shouldn't be there. I think that one thing that can really help is, as you mentioned in your previous question, uh, if the media takes more of a role of telling the truth. Uh, used to be in the bad old days that you would see a, uh, you know, a, a debate about climate change on CNN, say, and they'd have a split screen where they had James Hansen, you know, the famous NASA scientist on one side. And then some guy with a with a website on the other. They'd give him equal time. They'd let him talk. And then at the end, the host would say, "Well, it's a controversial subject. You decide." That's doing a real disservice to the audience. That's the, I mean, they're project, pretending to be objective, but that's a kind of a false equivalence, really. And the as you said, they're they're misleading their audience. Uh, I often say that the halfway point between the truth and a lie is still a lie. And the important point is that uh, the media, I, I think, can play a role here of doing a, a better job. I think scientists can also play a, a role here, which is to engage in debate, to actually uh, um, talk not just about the findings of science, but about how, how science works. And again, I'm not talking about more split screen uh, false equivalence debates. I'm talking about more what's going on right now in Clark County, Washington, where there's this terrible uh, measles uh, crisis. Um, and the governor of Washington sent the public health officials out to talk with people one-on-one, uh, sometimes in workshops, and they're making some progress. And I think that if people get engaged uh, more with scientists who talk, you know, who aren't afraid to talk about embracing uncertainty as a strength rather than a weakness of science, or just you know talking about how rigorous science is, how they found what they found. I think that can can make a big difference. I, I I I wish that people weren't afraid to talk more about science and to engage with it rather than just kind of go home and be right and not engage with the science deniers. Because if you do that, they're winning. Yeah, I mean the anti-vaccination uh, group 
uh, ironically brought uh, the extreme left and the extreme right together. <laughs> so they, they did. Yeah, yes. it's not it's not partisan. It's that's that's uh, bipartisan science now, right there. Yeah, but on most issues, let's be honest, it's the right wing, and so. Uh, and and if you're not if you're too afraid to say that, well, that's also covering up the reality. And and that's so right. and that's what leads Chuck Todd's of the world not to pick on him too much to now say like you mentioned the bad old days. Now they'll say like no, most of the world scientists believe climate change is real and man-made. But then when Mitch McConnell's on, he won't say look that's just not true. What you're saying mm-hmm. is scientifically unsound. You are against science because they would feel that that's very offensive to Mitch McConnell. So we don't want to offend Republicans, so we'll sow doubt on their behalf. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. If you're looking at it factually, I, I, I don't want my cognitive bias to get in the way. Is yeah. it true that it is mainly the right wing pushing against science? Well, in certain instances, you bring up examples like. Um, uh, anti-vax, which is bipartisan, but for climate change, uh, I think absolutely that's uh, that's an important point. Uh, in an earlier book I wrote called Post Truth, uh, I, I grappled with this right at the opening of the book, where I said, you know, look, most of the examples here are coming from the right, and to try to pretend that there's equivalence here is to engage in post truth. So I'm not going to do it. I'm going to play it straight. I'm going to call them as I see them. And uh, you know, I wish that the Chuck Todds of the world would uh, would do the same thing. You know, I watch his program. I, I see when he when he does that. I think that uh, it's it's always appropriate for a journalist to sort of take the other side to to quote uh, you know the hard facts. But then if you you know, and the way that they report science is sometimes very poor. Um, and so I you know I I don't like the split screen debates, the the artificial debates. And and I do wish that people would call out some of the, um, uh, you know, corporate interest would call out the Mitch McConnells of the world because I, I think that's that's really important. We're not doing anybody any favors by playing nice about climate change. We're we're really at a crisis point. Yeah. One last thing about that. Um, so, are there any Republican scientists left, and are they embarrassed? Um, it's a literal <laughs> question because if I was a scientist. Yeah. I don't think I could stay a Republican. It's deeply embarrassing. I'm sure that's been studied. I don't know the information about that. Every now and then, you hear of you know the the, the few handful of scientists who are um, uh, against climate change, who who don't think that anthropogenic climate change is real. I've never really bothered to uh, to study their their politics. I do note that <laughs> that in some cases they're getting money from from right wing causes, so that's a, a little suspicious. But uh, I you know, I don't know that for a fact. I have to say I, I haven't studied the literature on that. But but I that climate change has definitely been politicized. It wasn't that many years ago when uh, Newt Gingrich was sitting with Nancy Pelosi on that couch on the public service ad, saying, you know, we're going to whip climate change, or, or George Bush Sr. was saying he's going to fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. But then it became politicized, and once it's politicized, you know, partisan, then uh, then it's it's you know things can get really bad. Then you've got people who believe it, who spout the words that you know because it's a partisan thing, and just because it's what everybody else in their in their team says, and they haven't even bothered to investigate. Once it gets to that point, it's very hard to convince somebody. And I think that's what's made climate change such a such a stubborn thing. Yeah, look, I'll end on on this comment. 
and this is the stuff that gets me banned from TV. If you believe <laughs> that 99% of the world's scientists got together and did launched a global conspiracy to pretend that the temperature is something that it is not, you are a lunatic. I mean, they must have never met a scientist because scientists are competitive with one another. I mean, can you imagine scientists agreeing? To, to do something like that, they, they, the, the leakage would be uh, would be incredible. But those sorts of conspiracy theories always really shock me that that you could get any huge group of people together uh, to to do something like that, especially people as contentious as scientists. It just it just doesn't make any sense. Yet the entire Republican Party says that it's ma made up by scientists who are greedy. <laughs> insanity, absolute right, but insanity. Grant money is so so lucrative. <laughs> yeah, whereas, by the way, the corporate donor money for them is not lucrative. Hilarious. Okay. All right, everybody check out Lee McIntyre's new book, The Scientific Attitude. Lee, thank you for, for writing it. We appreciate you joining us as well. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, really interesting uh, guest on what is wrong with the legal system in this country. There's a lot of twists and turns in that interview, and uh, and how does he want to fix it? Uh, and has a very interesting answer to that as well. Let's do that when we come back. All right, back on the Young Turks, got a, another uh, interesting guest for you guys. Um, joining me now is Bruce Gibney. Uh, he is the author of the book, The Nonsense Factory. I like it already. The Making and Breaking of the American Legal System. Interesting. All right, Bruce, welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're an interesting, no problem. You're an interesting cat. You're a venture capitalist, you're a writer. Uh, you've invested in some of the uh, most uh, prominent and successful companies there are, uh, and you're obsessed with the legal system. All right, I like that too. Uh, so uh, first, why uh, do you think the legal system is so dysfunctional? So the legal system is fundamentally a cooperative endeavor. <clears throat> um, all parts of it have to work together in order to produce a sensible product. You know, Congress has to write laws that the bureaucracy can interpret and the courts have to interpret the laws and the rules that the bureaucracy writes and the president has to enforce the results of both. So for any of that to work, all parts of the legal system have to understand each other and they don't. And the result is that we produce an enormous amount of dysfunctional garbage. Um, you know, Judges, for example, say they know how Congress works. The Supreme Court hasn't had a legislator on the bench since O'Connor retired. There have been empirical studies that show that all these magical canons of judicial interpretation are actually disregarded by people in Congress that they don't know anything about them. So, um, and this goes uh, down all the way through. Um, you know, if you've been a client, for example, um, you'll try and get a straight answer to your lawyer. You'll be bounced around to six different departments. You'll get an enormous bill, and it'll come back with an "it depends." That's just not an acceptable way for a legal system to work. What we need are clear, reasonable rules that you know the people who have to obey them can understand. And presently, we don't even know, for example, how many crimes there are in the United States. There is actually no unified federal criminal code. Um, I can tell you more or less that everything is criminal, so we're all criminals in the legal system's eyes. I think there's something pretty screwed up about a system that condemns every citizen of a self-governing republic to the status of being a crook. Yeah, uh, while the biggest crook sits in the White House. Um, but uh, Bruce, um, the problem is fixing it, right? So uh, I, I went to law school and I took uh, one class that I thought was really interesting where they asked us to write legislation. And you realize when you're going through that process, process how difficult it is and how every word can be misinterpreted 
or has some vagueness to it, every word, every phrase, every sentence. So when you say write it in plain English, on the one hand, I hear you, brother. On the other hand, there's a reason why they write it that way. It's because they're trying to get rid of as much vagueness as they possibly can. So what's your take on that? Sure. Well, it, you know, it just depends on who the um, rules are directed at. You know, if you were the EPA and you're writing regulations for a public utility that's running a nuclear plant, of course the regulation should be, you know, complicated and technical. And if you're writing a statute that, you know, governs, you know, guns in a glove compartment or trunk, then that's something that the average person who has a gun or in the glove compartment or trunk ought to be able to read. Um, so that that does uh, that does depend. You know, I'm all for subtlety. Uh, but it has to be appropriate to the you know the people who are actually reading and have to obey the rules. That's just a basic jurisprudential principle, right? I mean, we wouldn't tolerate, for example, a criminal law that was written in Esperanto because no one speaks Esperanto. That would be unfair, would violate our basic sense of due process. So um, yes, of course, we have to have subtlety in the legal system. We also have to have sight of how you know, for example, you know, even with all this technical language that you're referring to, drafting statutes. Um, very precisely, these attempts at precise drafting have not worked uh, at all. That's why there's so much sort of statutory ambiguity. Why there are so many arguments about how we should interpret things at the at the courts, um, you know, originalism versus proposism and what have you. So, you know, at the very least, I think if we can't get the hyper technical language right, then we might as well have something in plain English. Now, keep in mind, by the way, the law requires the citizens themselves to report stuff in plain English. So. You know, if you're a publicly filed, uh, publicly uh, traded company, you have to report your results in plain English. And quite frankly, if Apple or GE or Google can report the results of their globe girdling operations in plain English in a, in, a, in a form that any reasonable person can read, the government can sort of do the same thing with its rules. I mean, you should have to live by the same standard it applies to us, more or less. So, Bruce, let's get to some things I think that we can agree upon, but unfortunately, as a country, we have not agreed upon. Uh, one is uh, politicizing the judges. So I think it's insane that they go, some judges in this country go through an election where, by the way, money in politics exists. So you could simply give campaign donations to a judge, which is basically bribing them um, and allowing them to be on the bench by just giving more money to the judge that'll rule in your favor. That's insane. So how do you unpoliticize it? What do other countries do that removes politics from that system? Most countries have professional judiciaries, which we do not. So for example, in France, you go to it's judge school. You go there for three and a half years after you do your standard legal education. The judges themselves select, they provide sort of a roster for the president and his minister of justice to select from. And so even though there is a role for the political branch in selecting judges, the field of candidates they can select from is vetted by the judiciary itself. So in, mo- in most countries, there's, you know, they, they think this idea of judicial elections is absurd. But even as the appointments process at the federal level, one of the most alarming things that we've seen in recent years is the fastest way to become a Supreme Court justice is to be an enabler of presidential power early in your career. And so this was the case with Alito, Kagan, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. All of them worked at the offices of legal counsel at the White House. Uh, or the Department of Justice articulating theories of presidential maximalism. And I think it's reasonable to conclude that that's part of why they became justices. It's the way to become noticed by an administration is to articulate the most expansive possible version of executive power. And that's that's what gets you on the bench. 
And the problem with that is, is while the bench itself you know, insulates you from some political constraints, that's the worldview that you arrive at the bench with. You have to be intellectually consistent. That's how you're predisposed to see things. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of the court cases in recent years have drifted towards an expansive view of executive power. Why they have tolerated abuses by the executive without the sort of pushback that you'd expect. Um, the court's record actually on executive power is not nearly as encouraging as a lot of people think. And at least with this week and, and contempt hearings, a lot of people are going to go back to the famous case of Youngstown uh, uh, tube and sheet uh, v. Sawyer, where the court said, listen, you know, you can't just see steel mills on some flimsy pretext, right? A la a trade war with, you know, or whatever else Trump is doing in the past 10 minutes. That was immediately preceded by a case called Landry Dollar, where the court buckled three times um, to presidential contempt, essentially, by the Secretary of Commerce. Um, and the, reason, the difference between the two cases is 1952, when um, Youngstown Sheet and Tube was decided. I, I think I have that date right. So, and with Youngstown, um, Truman had already basically lost the primary, and, and there was really not a lot to push back against in terms of presidential power. Truman was a lame duck. The year before, he was fairly popular. And when he had strength, when the presidency had strength, the court caved. So, the court's record on pushing back against executive power is not as encouraging as we're taught in law school. It's yeah. actually a much more mixed bag. And, and I do worry about that. Yeah, I also think that they raise their hands for the judges that are most likely to give corporations power. So Gorsuch said, yeah, if you if your corporation tells you to freeze to death, you have to freeze to death in the trucker case. <clears throat> and, and, and so Kavanaugh had a similarly vicious argument in the SeaWorld case where he said, yeah, no, you don't get no workers comp for a killer whale literally killing you. Uh, and so if you uh, raise your hand and say, yeah, I will let corporations do anything they want, your chance of getting on the Supreme Court is significantly higher. So this is a totally absurd system. Uh, and, and hence the name of the book is The Nonsense Factory, and, and I think that makes sense. Well, at least one more thing here uh, about easy fixes. Uh, the law doesn't always apply the same to everyone in America, right? I mean, we've got justice is blind as a theoretical concept. But if you say, hey, I didn't know that law, that's not gonna help you at all. But what if a cop says that? Does that help him? Yeah, it does. So I'm going to I'm going to articulate a right-wing justification for a very left-wing outcome. So um, you know, one of the problems with the legal system is it confuses quantity with quality. It's for everything there must be a rule because a rule is the solution to all problems. So as a result, we have an enormous number of rules in our system. The problem is, is that the system can't enforce all those rules evenly. And the price that we pay for that is executive discretion, which means the prosecutors charge whom they want, how they want, which means the police arrest whom they want, when they want. And even when they overstep, even when they make an error, the Supreme Court has offered a version of sovereign immunity, qualified immunity, which says, listen, our jurisprudence on searches, seizures, police brutality, misconduct, this, that, and the other, it's just too complicated for a beat cop to understand. Now, by the way, we're gonna hold you, the citizens, responsible for all of it. You have to know every single piece of the law because ignorance of the law is no excuse, unless you're a cop, in which case we'll say, who could possibly understand all these rules? So why don't we just say, if any reasonable mind could disagree. Any reasonable cop would think, well, the lie here is confusing and maybe it means this, maybe it means that. By all means, pull the trigger and we'll let you go. So this is the price that we pay for having a lot of low quality rules. Now, it would be better if we had a few high quality rules instead, and then we could limit the amount of discretion 
um, that we've invested in the executive. Because the problem with executive discretion is it's no better than the executive who wields it. And presently, we know who the chief executive is, that's the president. And that hasn't worked out particularly well in this administration, but it hasn't worked out particularly well in many administrations. I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi is right. There is a constitutional crisis, but it's not just Trump. The president itself is a constitutional crisis. All right, uh, Bruce Gibney, a really interesting book called The Nonsense Factory. His earlier book, also interesting, was called A Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America. So uh, Bruce, uh, thank you for stirring the pot and, uh, and coming on here on The Young Turks and talking it through. We appreciate it. My pleasure, thank you. All right, uh, okay, a quick break, then we come back live for, uh, for everyone. Uh, we're gonna do a post game for, uh, for everyone uh, and we're gonna do Ask Me Anything. So only members can ask questions, tyt.com slash join, but everybody can watch, so come right back.